0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan and in this episode my guest is a now retired rider. He is Shane Parker we're linking up with him in Adelaide. Since retiring his life has taken a couple of twists which we will hear about uh, very very soon. But in his career, he was a South Australian champion, he rode for his country and he also rode for a number of clubs in Great Britain, including Ipswich, Middlesbrough, Kings Lynn, Hull, Bellevue, Peterborough, Glasgow, Somerset and rounding off his career at Sheffield. He's also known as being an entertainer on the track, but also he's done a lot of great work for Speedway in general off the track as well. gives me great pleasure to welcome my next human of Speedway, Shane Parker.
1: Thanks, great to be here.
0: It's great to have you here as well. Of course, last year you had a very serious health scare. Um, how are you uh, How are you getting on now and what are you up to?
1: I'm in a bit of recuperation mode. I had a um, cardiac arrest last June, so I wasn't in pretty good shape 12 months ago. I'm probably pretty lucky to be here at present, so it's... Um bit of a joy to be talking to you to be fair.
0: Well of course we're, we're glad to hear you and I'm sure many of your fans um, all across uh, Speedway but especially the ones in Britain will be very pleased to hear you in in such fine voice at the moment. Do you remember much about what happened though because it was your own family who came to save your life wasn't it?
1: Don't know why or how or what happened I mean I've had previous heart problems um, and it just sort of early one evening I collapsed and went down I don't even remember anything it was me wife and daughter that saved me give me CPR and ambo's rocked up and they got the paddles on me and um brought me back to life so yeah and has
0: your outlook on life changed at all since all of that
1: oh i think it has yeah quite a bit you know it's um you think think things through a little bit differently and sort of yeah it, it definitely makes you think about life a lot more in different ways
0: and you'd retired and, and headed back to australia how was retirement going for you up until that point and how were you involved in speedway
1: um i, I done a fair bit of coaching back here in Australia when I first come home um, I got back in Adelaide in 2012 um, and I've been helping out a lot of the junior kids and some of the senior kids here since I've been back um, still continue to help the junior kids out which is I really enjoy that to see them progress from a, a sort of 50cc stage from a 125 up to a 500 it's um, great to watch their progression some of them are already up in the 500 some are still coming through but um, it's good to watch more talent coming through
0: and a bit of a long-term project as well i guess over the next 10 years it would be exciting to see where they can end up
1: yeah 100 it's um there's a couple of kids um that are just going over and there's also one going over soon once this um, virus stuff sorts itself out so it's, it's exciting times for me to to watch what they can achieve and get up to over there
0: Let's start with your career then, um, going back to the early days. Because um, how did you first get involved with speedway in Australia?
1: Uh, my father got me into cycle speedway um, when I was three years old. So I was I middle-lead training, was on my bike when I was three. But um, yeah, no, cycle speedway from three years old to um, seven. And I got my first mini bike. Um, I was at the age of six when I got my first mini bike, but you couldn't race until you were seven. So when I turned seven that was the end of um, pedal power and it became motor power I started junior junior motocross and um, I was involved with that for three years um, and when I turned 10 years old I ended up at um, Junior Speedway Sidewinders Junior Speedway in Adelaide so it's a bit of a famous Junior Speedway track in, in Australia it's probably the first Junior Speedway track I think and um, it's probably sort of one of the best facility wise in Australia too and we've, we've had I think there's been about 31 riders from Sidewinders that have gone overseas to ride, so that's um, that's something to be proud of.
0: And what sort of names were you growing up with at those tracks around that kind of time?
1: Uh, Ryan Sullivan, Brett Wooderfield, Nigel Sadler, Shane Bowes, Nathan Simpson, um, Scott Norman, Craig Hodson, Stephen Baker, Mark Fiora, quite a lot.
0: Wow, and some well-known names there as well. Did you find coming through the junior ranks you inspired each other and encouraged each other and pushed each other along the way as well
1: 100 percent. you you know you inspire each other and push each other um i think mildura probably takes the crown in australia as far as speedway talent um sort of mildura is probably four hours from adelaide out in the bush a little bit and um you don't have a lot to do out there so they tend to spend a lot of their times going around in circles at the speedway track um <laughs> they practice twice a week whereas uh here in Adelaide, they're lucky if they get one ride a month. So, um, the the guys in Mildura at the moment are just leaping ahead of the guys in Adelaide, which is unfortunate, but just the way it goes.
0: But it went well enough for you, and obviously so well that you thought about making a career of it. When did that moment come that really you thought you could make a go of Speedway as a profession?
1: Um, I I started racing 500s over here when I was 16. I had um, I'd started a apprenticeship as a motor mechanic, so. Um, I probably had the opportunity to go overseas and race when I was um, 18 years old, but I I wanted to finish my schooling for my apprenticeship. And um, when I got that done, I headed overseas. I was um, 19 turned 20 my first year over in, in the UK in 1990. And
0: that's a huge leap to make at that age to move to the other side of the world. I mean, I can't imagine at that age, up in sticks and heading to, to the far side of the world. How was that experience for you, heading to a completely new culture let alone country.
1: Yeah, it's um, it, it always been a long goal for me riding bikes for that long and coming up. And you know, you look at like Phil Crump and um, Billy Sanders as idols, and um, yeah, it's it's sort of what you sort of aim for. I set me goals, I guess, and I was lucky to achieve that at the age I did. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was quite ironic when I went over to the UK. I was quite Quite uh, particular with my food, I was meat and potatoes, I never ate nothing else, no veggies. Well, I know potatoes, vegetables, but that was the only one I would eat. And um, the old UK changed me, I ended up eating everything now. So um, yeah, no, it was a great experience going over there. Uh, I was quite young, but you know, it's sort of sink or swim. And um, luckily I managed to swim.
0: You certainly did, and you swapped the bright lights of Adelaide for Ipswich as your first club in the UK.
1: Yeah, I done my first five years was with Ipswich. Um, they were they were good years. I was uh, John Louie was the team manager and learnt quite a lot off of him, and um, had some great team riding with uh, Chris Louie as well. We uh, went through a bit of a spate with a lot of five ones, so he's, he's one rider I enjoyed team riding with. Um, but yeah, I left um, left Ipswich in 1994 was my last year there, and I went to Middlesbrough for a couple of years, um, and so went to a few other clubs in the end. I think I rode for about nine clubs in the end. So yeah, it was, a, it was a busy busy period, but in saying that, it was a long period. I was over there for 22 years, so uh, my career was quite extended. Um, I probably could have rode a little bit longer but I think when I retired I retired at the right time and um, I had one of the best farewells I could have ever wished for
0: it was a fantastic meeting that as well wasn't it at um, Sheffield and I, I remember a huge crowd turning out for you and it was a fantastic lineup as well
1: it was actually a week before I left to come back to Australia so that week was involved my farewell meeting packing my house up and getting on a plane and going home so it was one of the most stressful periods in my life, but um, we were at the track, we hadn't opened the gates for the farewell meeting and um, my wife grabbed me and said, come and have a look at this and took us up to the turnstiles and there was lines of people out to the road. So that was, um, yeah, it was uh, a little bit overwhelming really.
0: And the quality of the riders that turned out that day for you, I remember it well. I mean, it was pretty much like the first Grand Prix of the year.
1: Oh, I think there were six world champions in the meeting. So, I mean, I was uh, I was pretty honoured to have all them guys there, you know. Um, and we had, um, there was sort of all, all calibres of riders. There was world champions down to like the Sheffield riders, you know. I wanted to put on a show and entertain everybody. And um, I even lowered the prices to get in for that day too. I think it was only about um, £10 to get in.
0: But I think that you know when you've, you, I guess you don't really see it the way that fans do. But I think the way that you would look at, back at your career in England is that or in Britain rather, because obviously you rode in Scotland too. Um, that you've really been very consistent, and you've been an entertainer.
1: Um, yeah, I, I probably haven't performed as well I as well as I would have liked. Um, on individual terms, as far as team goes. I mean, I've been pretty proud some of the teams I've rode for and, and what I've achieved for them teams. Um, I've always um, been a been a better team rider, I think, than an individual rider. You know, people go and watch Speedway and play and they need to be entertained. You go there to put on a show. So um, I used to go out of my way to, um, to wind the opposition crowd up and wind people up and, and get them involved in the meeting. Um, always used to say, if if I left a speedway meeting and I didn't have a boo or didn't have a cheer, I wouldn't be happy. So, um, you know, people went away and said I was an idiot, but uh, next time I'd be at that track, they'd probably come back to give me more grief. So uh, either way, it it doesn't matter whether they like you or hate you. You've got to um, keep them involved and, and keep them interested in the sport and put on a show for them.
0: In a previous episode of this podcast series, we spoke to Neil Machin, who you'll know well. Yep, very well. And his um, thinking really was as as important as anything else in a team, you need to have an entertainer.
1: I I was the chairman of the Speedway Riders Association for eight years and um, me and and Neil butted our heads on a few occasions over a a few things. Um, We probably didn't see eye to eye and um, they actually owned my contract. So my last year, I kind of didn't have a lot of choices but to ride for Sheffield. (laughs) um which which in a way turned out good because i I had a great year i enjoyed it and um i think me and neil our friendship grew from that season anyway so um we've become good friends since and um yeah he's right you do need entertainer even when it comes down to promoters you need entertainers i mean buster chapman's a prime example for you he used to be a bit of entertainer when i was over there and used to have um uh Bob Dugard down at Eastbourne. So, you know, promoters also play their part in entertaining. You're
0: listening to Humans of Speedway, my guest in this episode. Joining us from Adelaide in Australia is Shane Parker, a legend with so many clubs around the UK, uh, particularly Glasgow, Ipswich, Kings Lynn, uh, Sheffield, Somerset, Bellevue. There's just a few of them. Uh, but um, something that you did off the track that you just alluded to there was you were the chairman of the Speedway Riders Association. And at this point, the Speedway Riders Association had completely fallen by the wayside and you brought it back to life and got things going again to help stand up for riders' rights. How did all that come about?
1: Yes, um, I think originally it was actually Tommy Nichols, Scotty Nichols' dad, that was trying to get it up and running. And um, he had a few problems and it didn't happen and we had to get rider numbers. And, um, I think Tommy, Tommy had sort of had enough in the end. And, um, I said to him, would you mind if I took it over? Um, which I did. And we had to actually go out and get 51% of the riders before the BSPA had recognized us as a rider association, which was fair enough. And, um, I think we'd done that easy. We ended up with something like 70% of the riders or something. So, um, yeah that's we, we reformed it um myself and gary havelock helped out quite a lot with that and there was also uh, uh lady v from um ipswich that's done the secretary job for us so um uh, that was that was a big help and um it was great to be able to get the association back up and running um so important for riders to have a say in the sport um they've been sort of walked over quite a bit by the promoters over the years when clubs have fallen by the wayside and riders are owed money and then there's rule changes come in about bikes and we never really had a say so uh it's it's so important to have a say in the sport that we're involved in
0: and you mentioned that you butted heads with with Neil Machin. I I imagine you you butted heads with a few promoters during that time
1: um I did butt my head with a few promoters but um there was some I got on with you know it, it at the end of the day it boils down to common sense and safety i think you know you want a safe track to ride on um and there were times where we were put under pressure to ride by promoters and referees and within reason you know if things are safe if you can go out there and race you can go out there and race but if you can only go out there and ride you're not putting a show on and you're not entertaining people so i mean it was more safety and and rules and things i think that i butted heads with with promoters but um at the end of the day, everybody's got their say, you know? Everybody's entitled to their opinion, and and I voice mine as part of a writers' association. Um, it's not something that I'd done off my own back. I always asked the writers on their opinions, and, and what the majority wanted is what we went for with the BSPA, and um, we had a few successes with them. Um, but in saying that, we we banged our head against the brick wall quite a lot also.
0: And what would be your biggest wins in that time then and the, the biggest changes that you kind of feel that you made to the sport?
1: Well, I don't know if we made any changes. It was just a case of, of being there to stick up for riders when they had problems with not being paid or, or insurance issues or anything like that. Um, and we actually got... Um, quite a few sponsors to give uh, riders discounts. Riders that were involved with the association. Tang Tools and Colin North um, who sadly passed away has put so much into the Riders Association. Riders were getting like um, 60-55% discount on Tang Tools so um, we had other companies as well that was providing discounts so it was a good thing for riders you know and um, it's just a shame that promoters probably didn't listen to us a little bit more. I think at the end of the day we have some good ideas about the sport as well not just them
0: and when you look at british speedway from such a distance as australia um I'm taking a sort of a more world view of it and you're more isolated from from things what was the reputation of british speedway at that time
1: uh, when when I was young and up and coming and looked up to all the speedway riders doing my junior stuff, um, it was the UK without a doubt. You know, all the top riders were there, and that's where all the action was. Um, obviously, since the sort of probably 2000 start of the 2000 in the millennium, it's it's Poland's taken over. Um, I think sadly, British speedway's deteriorated in um, in the caliber of riders, and, and probably. Um, the number of tracks that are closed too has contributed to that so it's um, I think that probably probably below Sweden I would I would imagine at present um, which is sad to say in saying that I'm, I'm only saying what I'm hearing at the moment because obviously I haven't been in the UK for well seven or eight years now so um but um, it's sad in a way I know the crowds have been down um, but um, got to go out and entertain them people and, and draw them back in somehow
0: It's a question I've asked a few times um, and I get different answers every time really from different people but how has Speedway declined over the last 20 years do you think?
1: One of the things that I actually I spoke to the BSPA about and pushed was um, when they were sponsored by Sky Sports they had millions of pounds of money invested into the Speedway and all that happened was riders got paid more money and riders expected more money and every rider expected more money and um, all that sky money got dwindled away on paying riders, which was 100% wrong. If if they'd taken 10% of that money and invested it, they could have bought Coventry Stadium as a national speedway, or any other. There's loads of venues they could have bought, and they've could have invested in, in junior development to um, bring on the kids over there. You need a good junior scheme in the UK, which, which doesn't exist. I mean, there's a few tracks that have got the junior bikes, but um, it should be absolutely booming over there, the junior side of the sport, and it, it's not, which is it's sad for British Speedway, really.
0: You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan, and my guest in this episode is Australian speedway rider Shane Parker, uh, who retired almost 10 years ago now, but uh, over his career, rode for nine different clubs in the UK, starting out at Ipswich, finishing up at Sheffield. But the team that you spent the longest time with was the Glasgow Tigers. Um, Must have been a bit of a culture shock. First of all, not moving from Australia to Ipswich, but then moving from Ipswich to Glasgow. Must have scaled things up a little bit. How was it there, moving up north of the border?
1: Yeah, correct. It's true. I um, I I actually said no initially to Glasgow. And, yeah, it was the club I rode for the longest. I spent six years there. Um, it was the one after that was Ipswich with five. But, um, no, when Glasgow originally offered me a contract, I kind of said there's no way in the world I'm going to Glasgow because it was so far from um, being based in the Midlands. And, um I kind of sort of had a think about it and it sunk in and they sort of provided a couple of sponsors to go along with having to travel up there in regards to accommodation and being able to stay up there. So it uh, wasn't too much driving up and back in one day and as well as a meeting. So, um, yeah, I uh, I went up to Glasgow and it's uh, probably a pretty rough place. I think every single night that I went out or had a meal or done something in Glasgow, I seen a fight or grief or police or something was going on. So uh, it was entertaining up there, it was always um, something going on. And um, I used to say to my wife that I kind of felt like I was at home in Glasgow. It was a bit like being back in Port Adelaide, but um, <laughs> not saying that Port Adelaide's that rough, but yeah, it used to be back in the day, a little bit, uh, little bit dodgy. And um, ironically, when I finished racing Speedway my last year that um, I was riding for Sheffield, Sheffield received an email from a a guy in Adelaide um, claiming to be my biological father, having been adopted. And um, I knew no idea about my um, biological father, and this guy out of the blue sent an email to Sheffield, and Sheffield spoke to me about it, and I ended up um, getting an email and sending it to him, and it turned out that it actually was my biological father, which was uh, Bit of a shock and a bit of a coincidence and ironically he was born two miles from glasgow track so i don't know whether that was anything to do with feeling at home in glasgow or not but maybe who knows wow that is incredible yeah amazing story isn't it yeah i I, I was adopted at a very young age um i think six weeks or something i was adopted um apparently my my mum's parents were catholic and um, she was only engaged and wasn't married, so she had to give me up for adoption, and the boyfriend had to get out of her life forever. So um, I ended up being adopted and grew up with my adopted parents. And at the age of ten years old, um, my adopted mum left, found another fella, and and left. So me and my sister ended up growing up with my dad, and um, <laughs> ironically, he ended up meeting a lady um that had had a nervous breakdown she was a friend of a friend and he helped her get over the nervous breakdown and ironically that was my biological mother believe it or not so I met my biological mother when I was 10 and my biological father when I was 42 so there's a book well, in that somewhere I think
0: that certainly is I mean how did you feel when that news sort of came through because not something you were expecting as you were saying
1: uh, when when I found out about my mum, I was 10 years old and I broke out in tears and didn't know what to think um, Regarding me dad. It was kind of like deja vu. It's like here we go again. Um, I was a little bit um, dubious about if he was my biological dad or not, but I asked him if I haven't had a DNA test but I asked him a few questions and um, He knew a lot more than I did so he, he filled me in with a lot of things. I didn't know and um, yeah, no, I still visit him today and see him, so it's um, it's good. Unfortunately, my adopted father passed away two years after I got home, after I retired. So uh, them two years were, were pretty gold, actually. So when I said I retired at the right time, it, it sort of also involved getting back here and spending the last couple of years with him.
0: Sure, yeah, precious family time. Uh, you're listening to Humans of Speedway. Shane Parker is my guest. Shane, you're, you're known... Uh, across Speedway in general as being an entertainer both on and off the track and um, when I was looking you up ahead of this interview I found your YouTube page and um, there was uh, one particular video that caught my eye it was called Naked Hot Laps yeah. <laughs> one of your party pieces
1: yeah being an entertainer that was um, any testimonial or benefit meeting or uh, any sort of individuals. So I special meetings I uh I would always ask if they wanted naked hot laps, and if they wanted them, well, I would oblige. So uh, I remember years ago seeing a picture of Brego doing it with a a sticker stuck on one of his butt cheeks. And uh, back in the day, you probably could get away with being totally naked, just boots and a helmet. But I always used to run me box, so I was um, covered up and decent for the kids.
0: (laughs) Safety first.
1: Yes, I remember going to Boise's testimonial actually and going around Paul Speedway and I think I was only like um, two or three seconds off the track record or something. It might not have been that close, but it weren't far off the track record. And Boise's come up to me and goes, you're a bloody idiot, mate. What if you come off? (laughs) And I kind of sort of took that on board, but um, it didn't stop me. (laughs) (laughs) That would be quite
0: incredible to break the track record naked. Would it stand?
1: Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think it would be pretty limp at the time, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that needs rephrasing. Yes.
0: <laughs> but the the entertainment value is something um, I, I see that you, you were obviously pretty handy with a pipe with um, centigreen announcers and uh, promoters and so on as well.
1: It's just putting on a show, like I said, banter, and I always had a lot of banter with Kevin L- Kevin Long, who was the announcer at Ipswich for quite a while. Um, apparently, I came in from a race one day and um, my mechanic turned around and said to me, he goes, Jesus, that commentator just ripped into you and give you heaps. And I said, Did he? And um, so I thought, All right, no worries. So I thought I'd grab a bucket of water and stroll out to the infield and tip the bucket of water over him, which I did. I drenched him. And. Um, <laughs> He was standing there with a the microphone in his hand anyway. I ended up getting pulled into the Ipswich office at the end of the meeting. This was after I'd rode for him, mind you. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of the promoters at Ipswich, Mike Weston, was trying to get me banned. He wanted to get me banned because I was, could have electrocuted Kevin Long with a microphone in his hand. <laughs> and I turned around and said to Mike, I said, "What with a nine volt battery in it mate?" I said, "You've got to be kidding." <laughs> it was just I guess that was his approach at the time, and I had a bit of a laugh about it and still do actually. it was quite funny, but um, no, it's it's a bit of banter here and there. I actually remember winding a guy up at Newport Speedway. <clears throat> he was hanging over the fence and giving me a sign that I probably can't say. Um, so I went up to him and I started giving him a bit of lip back and he bent down and as I've, as he's come back up, he's got a big rock in his hand. So I thought, I'm out of here and I dropped my clutch and took off and I don't know whether he threw the rock at me, but it was pretty big and in his hand ready to go.
0: At least you had the helmet on
1: or did you not have the helmet on? No, I had the helmet on no, and it was prob- probably a good thing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I try not to wind fans up too much. Probably the worst I've wound somebody up, I might have probably gone a little bit too far with that one.
0: When you look at the uh, over your career and you look back at the stories and, and and things that have happened over the time what what are the stories that sort of make you smile the most like those
1: Oh geez, that's 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 difficult I mean probably the funniest one was um another another one that involved Ipswich actually I um I was writing for Kings Lynn and um Buster Chapman was the team manager and obviously the owner of Kings Lynn and We'd gone back to Ipswich and obviously haven't ridden for, f- for five years. You know what they get up to and I was watching the tractor go round and every time Ipswich went off one and three, the grader rode over one and three. And every time it went off two and four, they'd roll two and four, pack it down. So I've clocked onto this pretty quick and um, trying to sort of tell the referee that what they were doing was wrong and it sort of didn't succeed. So I... um. A race had finished. I moseyed out in the middle and jumped into the tractor and tried to grade the track myself. <laughs> and, uh, Bob, the grader at the t- the grader driver at the times grabbed me by the collar and my leathers and tried to drag me out the tractor. And there's a bit of a scuffle went on. And uh, long story short, I ended up getting out. I couldn't get it in gear. I didn't realise there was two levers you had to use. So I, was, I went nowhere in the end. And um, got out the grader, and by this time Buster's come running over, and he's trying to stick up for me. And there was a whole heap of people around, and I've just sort of headed off back into the pits. And um, I've turned around, and I've seen a people, a round circle of people, and Buster in the middle, and arms flying left, right, and centre. And I left Buster to it. <laughs>
0: Just wash your hands and run off.
1: Yeah, I did. I did. But um, I've actually got a, a clip out of the newspaper from that. It made the newspaper in Ipswich, so I always gave them something that was good for the, uh, for the local rag.
0: And is that something that Speedway's maybe missing more now, you know, the, you know, the traditional pantomime villain or the other character that sort of polarizes the crowd but still draws them in every week
1: yeah i mean it's um i don't know if there's any characters left in the sport now or not i think it, it's gotten to the stage now where it's that professional and there's so much money involved you you can't sort of plan around or be a bit of a goose you've got to put your head down because there's um so much riding on it so it's uh i think times have probably changed a little bit regarding that with riders i uh I used to try and make it a habit that after every meeting you at least have to have one drink in the bar before you went home. And, um, nowadays you go home you go to sleep you go to the gym it's um it's so much more professional than it was when I was riding
0: and while we're saying we're maybe missing these characters is it just progress and for the better of the sport that it is being taken much more seriously and much more professional now by the riders
1: yeah 100% I think it's better for the sport it's got to progress with time and move with the times and you know with tv involved and, and big dollars and sponsorship, it's. Uh, it's got to take that step forward or it's never going to go anywhere and um you know i think that's something that um british speedways probably struggled with a little bit you know over the past sort of 20 years it hasn't moved forward with the times and and um needs to um i don't know i don't really don't know what the answer is but um it has been good, it could be good, and it should be good. It could be better, and I hope it does pick up in the future.
0: You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan, and I'm pleased to say joining me in this episode is Shane Parker, direct from Adelaide, Australia. He's going to be picking his all-time 1-7 to seven very soon and deciding on his perfect dream meeting but uh, when talking about your colourful career uh, on and off the track in terms of being an entertainer but um it's not been without its controversies you were banned at the start of your career and this was back in australia can you can you tell us more about what happened at that time and um and how it all panned out because you were looking down the barrel of a a two-year ban at one point
1: i'd done a meeting um in newcastle which is 17 hours drive from adelaide um and we got to the meeting, I actually rode in the meeting with Craig Hodson, um, another guy from Adelaide. He rode overseas with Peterborough and Bradford. And um, we got there and they started doing machine examination. we were all warming our bikes up, getting ready for the race. And um, the machine examiners asking everybody for their licenses. And all the New South Wales boys were turning around and they were saying to the guy, it's in the post, it's in the posts." And What the problem was for me, it was New Year's Day, so it was like the first of January, and I'd forgotten to renew my license. Um, Obviously the day before it would have been not expired, but New Year's Day it had expired, so uh, I said it's in the post like all the other riders did, but it wasn't in the post and I hadn't applied for my license, so I actually got um, banned for a few months for racing in a meeting without a license, but uh, Having travelled 17 hours, the last thing I wanted to do was um, sit in the pits and not ride, so I um, I guess I suffered the consequences for it.
0: But the, the ban was reduced, wasn't it, because I think that it, they were threatening it to be a lot worse than that, potentially. Yeah,
1: yeah, I got off it pretty lucky in the end, I think. So, um, yeah, there was there was one other time I got um, suspended in the UK. Um, I think the referee's name was Will, Will Hunter or Will Hunt and um, they were checking engines. It was when I rode for Middlesbrough and they'd done an engine check and I was going off my dial at him, what are you checking my engine for? You should be checking the people that are cheating. And he's pulled my engine down and he turned around and he goes to me, we've got a problem with your motor, mate. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's 517 cc's. And um, I was completely oblivious to it because I didn't build me motors or nothing and I don't know how it happened. Obviously a tuner that I used, <laughs> had stuck something together that was over 500 cc's and um, I I got fined and banned for that. So uh, it cost Middlesbrough a meeting and cost me a bit of money. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not real fond of that and um, I will hold my hand up and say I didn't know it was a 500, whether people believe me or not. That's how it goes. I had no idea.
0: I suppose if you are putting your, your trust in somebody else to look after your engines, then that must be a, a little bit of a... A risk in some respects, because you know your your name's above the door even if uh, even if somebody else is doing the work yeah
1: that's the way it goes i mean like i say uh, I mentioned earlier like um, if you're a young kid up and coming you need to know your bike and need to know what it does and um obviously that sort of thing engine size sometimes if you're not don't know enough and not involved you you're not going to have a clue if it's oversized so um yeah it was it was one of them things it's probably the only black mark against my career apart from the meeting without a license so um yeah it's them two things but uh it's pretty hard to go through a career without uh any marks against you i think if you do you're uh, you're a great ambassador for your sport that's all i can say
0: <laughs> very delicately put but on the other hand when you look back over your career what were the meetings that kind of stand out most in your mind that you think yeah that was pretty cool
1: that's that's a bit difficult sort of on an individual front. I didn't achieve a great deal I mean the, the one that brings rings Memories to me was uh, I'd broken my scaffold um, Racing and I'd been in plaster for six weeks. I think um, And I got the plaster cut off and I had six meetings in six days um, Straight out of being straight out of plaster so I remember riding six meetings in six days, and the sixth meeting was the Scottish Open at Glasgow. Um, used Scottish Open's normally always at Edinburgh, but that was when Edinburgh wasn't running, so they, they held the Scottish Open at Shawfield, the old Glasgow track. And um, so I'd done six day, uh, five days of racing and hadn't washed me bike for any of them meetings. I've rocked up at Glasgow, sixth day on the tri hadn't done me clutch nothing. Jumped on my bike, had six rides, six wins and won the Scottish Open. So that probably <laughs> takes the cake for me, that meeting. The bike got a wash after that one. It deserved it.
0: Uh, yeah. You probably collected a fair bit of shale on it by that point.
1: Yeah, it had, but most of it had fallen off, it had dried and fallen off. But uh no, I, I didn't do that too often. I think it was sort of bit of a hectic period and a lot of traveling with uh six days of racing and um yeah so it was what it was and that that's probably pretty memorable to me it was a bit of an honor to win the scottish open
0: yeah definitely big big meeting there a lot of focus and especially winning it on glasgow's patch would be uh
1: yeah, sort of. Uh-huh. Even more so after finding out about me, uh, me biological dad being from Glasgow. So yeah, that was cool. And when it comes
0: to, like, you know, we mentioned there about not washing your bike. I, we, this is a side that probably often overlooked by fans, I suppose. But there's a lot of preparation and and washing bikes, washing your race suit, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, is that the kind of thing that you know you you that you do have a few hacks to to speed that up when required.
1: Yeah, uh, your majority of races are one in the workshop and um, the time you spend on your bike and maintaining it and making sure it's not gonna break down when you're out on the track. And um, you know, I think you race a Speedway bike for four, maybe five minutes a night if you're lucky. And um, it takes you five hours to wash your bike. So there's definitely 80% of the time, probably more than 80% of the time spent in the workshop. Um, probably maybe only 5% of the time on the bike, I think so. Yeah, it's really important to um, uh, maintain your bike and look after it and actually know what your bike does, you know, engine-wise and and, um, whether your bike's spinning up or gripping and you can convey that to your tuner and um, it's a lot of knowledge, I guess, and it's hard when you're young and learning all that and it it takes a lot of years to to, um, get all that experience, I guess, so... um, it probably helps to have you know former riders in your corner um which you've seen many times before and um yeah it's just progression i think as you grow up and involved with the sport
0: and we, we do have a few young speedway riders um who subscribe to this podcast and what would be your advice to people at that stage who are just maybe starting out in the 500 level and, and so on that that would help them out
1: Social media plays a huge part in things now. Um, you definitely got to have a, a good um, social media profile. I think on not just one social media either. There's plenty of them out there nowadays, and uh, you know that can give your sponsors great exposure. Um, so that, that's definitely one of the first steps I would take. Um, possibly also being able to work with media, being able to talk and and being able to be interviewed by somebody that, that speaks to you. Um, obviously, fit, being fit and um, working out in the gym and training's a, a huge part of racing. Um, probably more so pre-season than during the racing season because you, you just don't have a lot of time during the racing season. So, um, as long as you're fit at the start of the season, the, your racing will carry you through the rest of the season. So. They're probably the three main things I, w- I would say to any young rider,
0: yeah. All sound advice, and obviously, media uh, social media n- not something we would have been talking about at the start of your career. That's something that sort of
1: yeah, developed around you, isn't it? Which was a great thing because nobody knew about half the stuff we got up to back then. It was great, but you've got to be very careful with a rider now. I mean, I when I do my coaching with the, the young guys over here, I say to them. Um, if you're going to have social media, you have your own social media, and then you have a race page, and you don't want your mates going on your race page with foul language or saying wrong things because that could upset sponsors. So um, it's not just you; it's uh, it's also your mates as well. You know, it's it's sort of looking at the big picture, and um, um, social media can help you in the right ways if you're careful with it, but it can also help you in the wrong ways. It's got a few people in trouble too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I come from like a, a more of a broadcasting background, I suppose. But the the motto really with social media there is you never say anything on your own page. You would never say on the radio or on the TV.
1: hundred percent. Yeah. Good words there.
0: You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan. My guest in this episode is Australian Speedway rider, now retired, but uh, Shane Parker is with us. And we've reached that point in the podcast where we put together Shane's Speedway Paradise. The ultimate meeting and the ultimate location with the ultimate people. Who's he going to choose in his all-time one to seven? All these things to run through in the next few minutes. Uh, but we'll start off, Shane, with your perfect track. Now, this is irrespective of the surrounding elements. We're dealing with just the shale at this one. So what would you be riding on?
1: Well, I've actually, I'm a bit undecided. I have two here, um, Kings Lynn and Birmingham now okay. B- buster chapman was doing the track at kings lynn huggy huggy originally at kings lynn and he used to pair it so grippy and so drivey i absolutely loved it and um birmingham alan bridget was doing the track there uh it was when it first uh reopened again and it was very similar dirt and very tacky and grippy again so they're probably my two favorite tracks i uh was never ever fond of any slick tracks i uh, Hated slick ones and loved the grippy ones. Like going fast. Yeah, well, it was a case of being a bad gator. I could never make starts real good. And um, at least at least when I um, missed the start on a grippy track, I had the opportunity to uh, pass riders. And you know, I was a racer. I was never a gator.
0: I, I suppose you got to be at least one or the other, haven't you?
1: Yeah, well, true. You know, I think a lot of the Danes <laughs> are very good on the slick tracks. I don't know why it is, possibly, because they grow up on slick tracks and that's how they learn to ride. So um, back here in Australia, when I was growing up, it was, we used to race on car tracks with concrete fences and they were always grippy. So uh, yeah, I guess it's just what I grew up with.
0: (laughs) That sounds really romantic, a car track with a concrete fence. Yeah. Fully compliant with health and safety.
1: Yeah, there was no such thing as (laughs) health and safety growing up over here in Speedway. It was, um, we, you know, unfortunately we don't race on them tracks now, but fortunately we... Don't either. It's sort of catch 22 there because there's not many tracks we can ride on over here now that are sold bike tracks. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a lack of opportunity, but on the other hand, it was pretty dangerous and, um, you didn't want to make any mistakes with, with them concrete fences that's for sure. Well, all the Aussies <laughs> grew up doing that. It was just it's what we knew. I mean, riders probably rode within themselves. I think back then, whereas nowadays, with an air fence, um, you can see that riders just put so much on the line, and they—they, they, I guess, they kind of know there's a safety fence there. But geez, it's—they um, put so much more on the line now with the air fences than they used to before the them air fences. Air
0: fences, obviously, I know that um, Chris Holder had a really bad um, crash, didn't he, when he slipped underneath one? But have have they really then, as you're saying, they softened up or increased the risks? I suppose, or riders taking extra risks knowing that there is that safety net?
1: I think the riders take extra risk knowing there's a safety net there. Um, I think some of the air fences are good, and then there's some cheaper ones that aren't as good. Um, I think they can be... The air fences aren't the be-all and end-all. I think they can be improved on, um, and I don't think they've been improved on for quite a few years. It would be good to see a bit more... uh, improvement on them i don't know if riders are still um, having the problem with bikes hitting the fences and lifting up air fences and riders going under them but um, back when i was racing that that was a big problem um claimed a couple of really good riders some nasty injuries so uh yeah i mean it's an added bonus but you can build on that and you can't just sort of say well you know we've got air fences now and that's enough you know they can make them better and improve
0: and moving on then to the the stadium that you'd put your Ideal track, which is a, a merge together of Lynn and Birmingham.
1: It's a no-brainer. So, it's got to be go Wembley. On. Yes, the old Wembley. Yep, 100%. Twin Towers. 1981?
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get on to your all-time team then. I think this is the bit that everybody looks forward to the most. Who would be in your all-time one to seven? Over to you.
1: I've got Bruce Penhall. It is
0: 1981 at Wembley.
1: Sorry, he won it. He did, yes. And he was one of the older professionals, I think. I sort of always looked up to Bruce and admired him. Um, the two Morans as one rider, Sean and Kelly put into one rider. Imagine that.
0: Wow, so you're sort of turning into a, a Speedway Frankenstein.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, both of them were a talent, so I think if you could combine both Morans, that that would be a, a phenomenal rider. Yeah. Um, the next two I've picked are down to um, my experience with team riding with them and being great team riders. Um, firstly, that's Chris Louie, who I mentioned earlier. And secondly, me Glasgow days, is, uh, we went through a load of five ones with me and James Greaves. Um, so Greaves is one of them. And the next one's a really good mate of mine and a superb grass track long tracker is Joe Screen. Um, no, Mr. Entertainer, if if anybody is, is he's definitely one of them. And, he likes a wheelie. Yeah, loves a wheelie. And there's not too many people you can see go around the whole whole lap on the back wheel. So uh, that's something I've never <laughs> been able to do. And I love me wheelies. So nice, you would be there with us. And um, one other rider who's unfortunately got injured in the sport in 1990, and that's Eric Gunderson. Um, some guy that unfortunately didn't fulfil... His full potential, so um, I'd love to see him there. And the final, last but not least, is a superb Australian back in the day, is Jack Young. There's my pick. Some
0: interesting picks there because you know it's not like going for the obvious world champions and and so on, like James Greaves and. No,
1: no, good, good team riders and so you know people yeah. I remember as as um back in the day. Yeah, that's that's my favourite seven. Say
0: when I was growing up, um, I was um a Bradford fan um a Halifax fan and uh obviously that's where Eric got injured and I wasn't at that meeting but I do remember seeing Eric ride around that track and um he was just unbeatable him and Hans Nielsen were always kind of you knew when they arrived with their respective teams that it was going to be a tough night
1: yeah yeah and Bradford was such a great track to watch him ride at too you know I I think it was actually might have been 89 Eric crash not 90 um, the world final was there in 90 in Bradford it. So That's um,
0: right. That was Per Jonsson won that.
1: Yes, yeah, correct. And Todd Wiltshire was second, uh, third, sorry. But yeah, well, that was my first year in the UK um, and my first world final I'd ever seen. And gee, what a world final was it was. Um, memories there, definitely. It was Todd Wiltshire's first world final too and to finish third was uh, a super effort. That's a, another rider I look up to a lot. Um, reason being, I look up to Todd Wiltshire is He was the immaculate starter. If anybody could gate, it was Todd.
0: And there's talk of Bradford coming back, by the way, as well. That's, uh,
1: oh, I, saw, I seen a couple of crossed. photos of Bradford a while back, and it looked like the track they built a big um, club rooms or something over the uh, third and fourth corner. And I thought, oh, there's no hope of Bradford returning. But uh, that's good news if it is. Let's hope so.
0: Yeah, they reckon they can still ride. Yeah, cool. Um, cool. The, the rugby, yeah, but it's, it's disused at the minute.
1: I think uh, um, so, I think the Hams yeah. done a, Done it. The Ham Brothers done a great, great lot for Bradford. You know, they put on a good show there, and they always had good riders in the Bradford team. Bradford team was always very hard. And when you went there, it was pretty daunting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, a big uh, stadium as well, isn't it?
1: Oh yes, yeah. It was. It was a great stadium to race in, and um, you know, it was with the banking on the corners as well, it was. Uh, always love a track with a bit of banking. You get a flat track, it's not as exciting, and the racing's not as good, but. Track with a bit of bank and you can have a go and there's passing and makes for good racing.
0: Okay then, so moving on uh, with your fantasy meeting then, we've got we've got the riders sorted. Who's going to be the referee, do you think?
1: Uh, this is not going to be the referee and that's Frank Hebden, okay? Reason being was like um, he was very quick on the two-minute button. Bikes would still be on the track and the two minutes would be on. So like coming in from the well, race would be finished, they still wouldn't be off the track. Bang, the two minutes would be on. And uh I remember Frank getting a meeting finished in just over an hour one night. So um yeah, no, it was all a bit hustle and bustle with Frank, but um hard to say. Modern, modern of uh, my era when I was riding, probably the fairest referee. Tony Steele or Jim Lawrence, possibly, I think. Um Paul Ackroyd. Paul Ackroyd was always reasonable. So probably out of them three, I think, mate.
0: Yeah, Tony Steele has had um he mentions yeah i imagine he
1: would he's very approachable and you can talk to him and he explains himself and at the end of the day riders they get excluded or get put out of a race it can cost them a lot of money and they've got a lot of frustration to vent you know and tony always approached that really well and um you know he was always calm and collected about it and um told his side of the story to the writer. And more than not, the writers would understand where he was coming from and agree with him. So that's probably why a lot of people picked pick Tony, I think.
0: Is that the thing when you see writers getting on the phone to, to the referee after they've been excluded? Is that more for an explanation as to why? Because you've, I've never seen a, a referee really overturn a decision.
1: No, and more than often, you're completely wasting your time getting on the phone to a referee. But I, I think more than not, it is just that frustrating frustration and wanting to know why he done it to you. Only if you think you were in the wrong. You, if you're in the right, sorry. So um, yeah, it was um to have it explained to you. I think it sort of calms you down a little bit. You can see it from his perspective. But um, yeah, I, I guess that's the side of it.
0: Do you wish that maybe? tv and things like that will be used a little bit more now
1: 100 without a doubt i mean if it's there and available why not use it because um like i say it can cost riders money and if they're harshly you know if they're sort of nipped at the gate and there's obvious proof that that they've won the race and um video replays there you've got to use it i think i mean sometimes it might be a bit um poor quality and not real good but um yeah no definitely i think you got like i said earlier you got to move with the times and i think uh, video replays for referee would be a good step forward Um, one thing i've suggested over here in australia which hasn't been taken on board um, is to have two referees at the meeting you have one on the infield and one in the box the one in the box is in control but he's got another person or another referee to to get a second opinion off or, or he might, the second referee might see something that the first one didn't. There's there's no way in the world a referee can watch four riders spread out over four laps all at one time. So he's going to miss, referees are going to miss things from time to time. So um, yeah, I think two referees would help and video replays would help.
0: And I suppose there's a big difference in each track as to where the referee sat as well.
1: Yeah, there's some tracks too um, where you can't actually see the tapes very well from the referee's box, you know, and like riders touching the tapes. It could be a guess and um, there's, there's instances like that. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's um, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, referees are in the worst position possible. They can't do the right thing. They can't do the wrong thing. No matter what they do is right or wrong in somebody's eyes. So um, it's a tough job. I I admire them for what they've done. Um, always tried to get along with them and be as friendly as I could to all of them <laughs> for obvious reasons um, but no it's um there was referees you liked referees you didn't like that's part of the sport you know um it's like riders you you get dished up by a rider you you put that rider in the black book and referee excludes you and it wasn't your fault you you remember that referee in the future you know but um at the end of the day you, you wouldn't have the sport if it weren't for the referees so um yeah, it's, um, you know, you've got to respect them at the end of the day.
0: On the subject of the, the, the laws of Speedway then, if you were in charge of the rule book for for just a day, what would you change?
1: No work visas for Australian Speedway riders. I mean, Sam Masters got put out for a year. He was stuck over here and couldn't get over there. There's been other riders in the past too, you know. Um, work permits have created a lot of headaches for a lot of Australians over over the years I remember when I first went over, I was very lucky because my biological mother was born in the UK, so I had patriality. Um, But I remember a rider from Queensland, Tony Rose. He um, hopped on a plane, flew all the way over to the UK and sat in the airport and didn't have a visa and they put him back on the next plane and turned around and come home and that was the end of his his British career. So uh, there's been issues in the past and there is issues now. So it's just sad in a way that we're a Commonwealth country and we've got to apply for a work permit. But um, they're the rules, I guess. That's what the British Home Office decide and that's how it goes.
0: And the final question then, we've got this meeting with uh, the perfect lineup for your team, the perfect location, who is going to be the opposition? And this is any complete team from history.
1: Well, I've kind of, could I pick a World Team Cup team? Go on then. It's, it's only four riders I know, and a reserve, so it's five. But I reckon the Australian World Team Cup team in 2001 and 2002. They were pretty shit off.
0: And who was in that team?
1: Uh, in that team was – well, you push me here um, – <laughs> Crumpy, Todd Wiltshire, Ryan Sullivan – Jason Lyons and Lee Adams yeah I, I would love to see that team against all the others we might have to add a couple of other Aussie ring-ins maybe I reckon maybe oh, you F- could Phil, join in Phil, Phil, Phil Crump and um, Billy Sanders had top the cake I reckon
0: <laughs> sounds like a fantastic lineup to me and um, thanks for uh, putting together your your speedway paradise and thanks for joining us Shane and giving up a bit of your evening it's been a pleasure speaking to you
1: been my pleasure thank you very much and um, I hope I don't bore too many people with this podcast cheers
0: I don't think so because you're ever the entertainer
1: no worries I appreciate it thank you very much
0: and what we haven't told people is that we've been sat here just in our boxes (laughs) I like it my thanks to Shane Parker for joining us on this episode of Humans of Speedway and don't forget there's other episodes you can check out if you've not listened to them yet including with Scott Nichols Nigel Pearson Jeff Scott Neil Machin, and Peter Oakes. They're all available wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, we always like hearing from you. You can get in touch with us via our social media accounts at SpeedwayHumans on Twitter, or look out for us on Facebook. Just look out for Humans of Speedway on there. And you can give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you get the next episode direct to your device. And until the next time, take care, and we'll see you soon on the next Humans of Speedway. Social Podcast Network.
1: When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.